Lovely, thanks so much. So if you've got a Bible on you, you can um, stick a finger in 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18, that's where we are today. You'll have to excuse me, I'm sitting down, I'm not as young as I look anymore, so grab a stool. Great, so we're going to go, as John said in the House for My Name series, and we're going through the Old Testament, providing this big picture understanding of the story um, to give us greater appreciation for the hope that we have in God and his big rescue story for the world. So that's what we're doing here. He's always trying to build his house and to be with his people. And the story uh, throughout the Old Testament chronicles God's big rescue plan to redeem a people for himself, to dwell with him forever. We've gone all the way from Genesis, that was the creation of the world, through the Exodus to the establishing of God's people in the Promised Land. We've seen judges, and then we've seen kings, and today we're picking up the story halfway through Kings, which is hopefully by now where you've got your finger. Now, Kings in our Bibles is split into one Kings and two Kings, but when it was written, it was just one big scroll, okay? So they basically, when they were, uh, were, were writing it down, couldn't fit it onto one scroll, so... One kings, two kings, and it tells this unified story of the long line of kings that followed Saul and then David. And David has unified the tribes into a kingdom, and God promised that from David's line would come a king to establish this kingdom over the nations, and we know who that is, don't we? And none of these kings in the book live up to the promises made of the king to come, and it's actually quite the opposite, in fact. So we heard about Solomon, who's David's son, under whom the, temp- the temple was built in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel at the time. And at this time, under Solomon, when the ke- temple was built, Israel was at its height in terms of size and in terms of influence. That's, as, hot, that's as, as big as it got there. But Solomon himself was prone to corruption and started to lead his own way, marrying the daughters of the kings of the nations around him and compromising by worshipping their gods and not God. And that's a big problem. Last week we heard how under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom was fracturing and actually split into two factions. So Rehoboam did not do well as a leader, and under his rule, Israel split into two. And you've got Israel uh, with the tribes in the north uh, that that gathers under uh, Jeroboam, and then Judah in the south that remains under Solomon's son Rehoboam, uh, because, uh, and so the Israel at this point splits into two. You've got Israel, you've got Judah. Uh, and that largely happened because the leaders who were leading at that time did not obey God's command. They weren't doing what God was telling them to do, basically. And so now we get to this morning's passage. We start in 1 Kings 17. And this morning's passage goes straight into 2 Kings. And actually, if I was to read that to you from 1 Kings 17 right the way to 2 Kings 4, that would probably take the entire time I've got this morning. So you shall have to forgive me in advance uh, for summarizing some passages and helping to give us the overall story. There is another thing that I need your forgiveness for this morning. And that, I'm afraid, is the fact that this morning's message has four jokes in. So fans of Old Testament humor, be prepared because the jokes are on the way. Just to warm us up, I'll give you the first two up front. You ready for them? Yeah. Good. Which Bible character had no parents? Joshua, son of Nun. Come on. Nun was his dad. That's a bit of Old Testament humor for you. You ready for the next one? Less people are ready for the next one, but I'm still going to do it. You ready? What kind of a man was Boaz before he got married? He was ruthless because he hadn't married Ruth. Come on. There you go. So... You've got to look out for the other two now. They're coming. They're going to come thick and fast, all right? So be ready for them when they come. 
So, essentially, this morning's passage is a bit of a whistle-stop tour of, of the kings, and mostly we're looking at the kings in the north, and these passages chronicle how well, or in most cases, how badly these kings do. What I've got up here, and apologies if you can't see it with the sun coming in, but it's a little bit of a history of the kings of Israel and Judah, and on the left-hand side here, you'll see the names of the people that we've already mentioned in our house for the name series. So you've got Saul, and you've got David, and his son Solomon, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam, and it's at that point the tribes uh, of Israel split into two. And you can see with the big blue arrow there, that's where Israel splits. And then on the one side, you've got all of the kings of Israel, and on the other side, you've got all of the kings of Judah. And we're right in the middle of this story. We are here. You see that big arrow? That's the bit of the story that we're coming into today. But hopefully that helps to give you a bit of a picture of where we are in this big story. Each time we meet a new king in Kings, we get a bit of a breakdown, a biblical top trumps card on their performance and how well they did at worshipping God and dealing with idolatry and following God's commands. But there's always hope, though, because God has always got a plan. And these passages, um, in these passages, God sends prophets to try and prevent the corruption of Israel and warn the kings. And up to this point, we've only met a few prophets in our stories week after week. Samuel's probably the most notable prophet we've met so far. But prophets play an important role in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, these key figures spoke on behalf of God, calling out idolatry and calling out injustice and reminding the people that there's only one God they should be worshipping. And if you go back to the big arrow that points to where we are this morning, you'll see in the middle you've got the prophets, and Elijah and Elisha are the two major prophets in the period that we're talking about here. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be focusing on Elijah. The other thing that you need to know about this period of history is that it's in this period that we also see Samaria built as the capital city of Israel. So in Judah, you've now got Jerusalem as the capital, and in Israel in the north, you've now got Samaria as the capital. And it's there that we're going to zoom in, in the middle of the story with tribes split and Elijah coming as prophet to try and point them back to God, okay? So we know who the good guy is. We've got Elijah. Now every good story needs a bad guy. And in this case, it's Ahab. And you can see there the big blue arrows pointed straight at Ahab. Uh, And he has a Canaanite wife called Jezebel. And they led the northern tribes to the worship of this Canaanite god called Baal. And we're told in 1 Kings that Ahab did evil in the sight of God more than anyone before him. And you've got to remember, we've been preaching week after week. That's already a pretty low bar, isn't it, in terms of how bad some of these people are. And we're told that this guy, Ahab, did evil more than anyone before him. So from the very start of this morning's passage, the only other thing you need to know is that there is a drought coming. So let me start reading for you from 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Uh, Elijah said to Ahab, so Elijah the prophet says to Ahab the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. There's going to be no dew, no rain, the drought's coming the next few years except at my word. In Elijah, we need to be hearing echoes of Israel's history here, okay? So like Moses, Elijah goes to the king. Moses went to the Pharaoh to proclaim drought. Elijah here goes to the king to proclaim drought. So when we see this pattern, we get a clue. Something big is about to happen. God's about to do something. We hear that echo in the story. Israel had turned from God and they were being handed over to their own folly because they were worshipping this Canaanite god, Baal, under Ahab's rule. And we see that Elijah is God's man in the midst of this story. And so, with drought on the way, God protects Elijah. 
and God tells Elijah to leave. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, it says, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and and I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. So God sends ravens each morning and evening to bring him bread and meat, and he drinks from this uh, brook, and he's kept full as the drought starts to bite. How cool is that? He's literally got, God's got birds bringing him deliveries of food in, right? It's like biblical delivery. They're coming in, providing the meat, providing the bread. He's got the water. He's being looked after by God whilst the rest of Israel experiences drought. And as we saw, God tells Ahab through Elijah that there's going to be no rain except at his word. So Elijah's there for a little bit, and then even the brook dries up because this drought really starts coming in. So God sends Elijah to the house of a woman called Zarephath in Sidon, and Sidon is the heart of Baal territory. He's not in Israel anymore, okay? He's moved out into the wilderness. He's now out near Sidon, and this is where the Canaanites are, and this is where Uh, Baal is being worshipped. It's the kind of heart of Baal territory. But God says that he's going to provide him food. So Zarephath, this widow, she's poor. She hasn't got very much food. And so when Elijah asks for food, uh, she says, I haven't got much. And so this miracle happens where uh, this small amount of flour and oil that Zarephath has never runs dry. The whole time that Elijah's there, Zarephath and Zarephath's son and Elijah, they get really well fed because God performs this miracle so that the flour and the oil doesn't run out. Again, we see the symbolism. Baal can't even provide food for this woman in his own territory. We're in Baal territory, and Baal can't provide the food, but nothing is beyond the reach of God. And God provides the food for Zarephath and for Elijah and Zarephath's son. Zarephath's son then becomes sick and dies. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 18 of 1 Kings 17. Here it says, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. And then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, you've brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing our son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived another miracle, third miracle. God steps in and brings the widow's son from death back to life. God brings life and Baal brings nothing, nothing. Even in the middle of his own territory, there's nothing. But God breaks in and brings life to this boy. We see that Elijah is a man after God's heart, and we see that God is with him, and miracles are being performed. I hope you're seeing the pattern. Nothing from Baal, everything from God. God's with Elijah, and where Elijah goes, so does the power of God. Elijah, the prophet, hears from God and obeys God's commands, and God does mighty things through him. And Elijah's name actually means, the Lord is my God. That's what Elijah's name means, the Lord is my God, and that summed him up. And in this sense, he's everything that Israel should be, but isn't. He's the reminder to the people of who the real God is in this story. He's the one who fed the Israelites in the desert, the one who guided their path. He's the one who brings life. And that's what we're supposed to see as these miracles are performed. He provides food in the desert. He brings the boy back from death to life. That's our God. That's the God that we worship. Nick Page, the Bible commentator, says of Elijah, his whole life was a contest, a fight between the forces of evil and the God of justice and love. The king couldn't bear to meet him. The man was a living reminder of all of his kingdom's sin and failure. 
Okay, so that's Elijah. So now we know more about Elijah and who he is. Can I get the game down just slightly? Is that okay? Now we know Elijah and who he is. Let's find out more about Ahab. So Ahab is uh, appointed king of Israel, and he was pretty astute when it came to foreign policy, but that ends up being his downfall because he goes to build an alliance with the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon, this guy called Ethbaal, in the middle of this uh, territory of, of Baal. Uh, it's the middle of Canaan, and he's in a bid to create this alliance with a big trade city called uh, Phoenicia. He marries Ethbaal's daughter, Jezebel. And now Jezebel... Is, has become a bit of a shorthand in our culture, hasn't it? You hear the word Jezebel, and it's kind of a bit of a shorthand for wrongdoing. You don't want to call your daughter Jezebel, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's what we know about Jezebel. And when you open up the Bible and read this story, you see that it's because Jezebel has got this evangelistic zeal for her god, Baal, this Canaanite god. And she drew her husband, Ahab, and the whole nation of Israel into the worship of Baal. And Ahab ends up building temples to Baal in Samaria. And what we need to see here is that history is actually repeating itself. If we fast forward all the way back to when we were learning about Moses and about Joshua, Joshua, when they enter the promised land, tears down the Canaanite uh, altars and the Canaanite shrines. So Joshua comes in, they claim the promised land, and these Canaanite shrines get torn down. And here we are years later, and this King Ahab is building them back up again. It's crazy. That's what's going on here. So Remember, time and time again throughout this story, we've heard warnings to God's people that they shouldn't compromise and worship the gods of the surrounding nation. And time and time again, led by their leaders, the people fail to remember God and they compromise and they start worshiping these gods of the nation around them. It is exactly what God told them not to do. And it's happening again. Jezebel orders the destruction of the altars to God. She persecuted believers in God and she was even killing prophets. She was ruthless when it came to hunting out and killing prophets and seeing her God established instead. In short, this period of history, the drought was biting. God wasn't being worshipped. Those who were worshipping God were being hunted down and killed and Israel had compromised. It was a bad time, okay? They were in a bad way. Again, Bible commentator Nick Page says that Ahab's rule of Israel was a whole different ball game. Come on, there's joke number three for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Don't worry, there's only one to go. So the gods of the nations that were being worshipped around Israel, they often had a purpose. And throughout the Bible, we find that people are worshipping these gods for a reason. It might be for finance, or it might be for fertility, and there's another god at this period of time called Asherah, and that's the god of fertility, and you might hear that mentioned a lot in the coming weeks as well. Or you might worship a god for good harvest, so when money was tight and crops didn't grow, or when you couldn't get pregnant, these people were tempted by the promises that these false gods offered, because they wanted their crops to grow, and they wanted to be pregnant. But of course, false gods make false promises, and they don't come to be. And so this god, Baal, that we read about in the story, among other things, the, the god that, Baal was the god that the Canaanites looked to for weather. Baal was the god that the Canaanites looked to for rain. And rain was vital if you wanted your crops to grow. And remember, we're in the midst of this massive, intense drought in Israel. It's not rained for years caused by this lack of rain. And that's what God had said through Elijah to Ahab. The rains don't come for the false gods, but only through God the Lord, the real God. So where's Baal? Where's this God that brings rain? You, Israel, want to worship this God, Baal, the bringer of rain. Well, 
we're in the middle of a three-year drought. Where's the rain? Where's your God now? Why hasn't he brought the rain if he's supposed to be the powerful God of the weather? You can see the folly of it all. So with this background knowledge, we've got our king, Ahab, his wife, Jezebel, and they've led Israel into the worship of this false god, Baal. And Israel have experienced three years of drought, but God still wants the people to see him and worship him above all else. So we're going to pick up the story here in 1 Kings 18. And when we start reading, we'll hear the arrogance of Ahab. After three years of drought, there's no sense of self-reflection. None of it's his fault. It's all this troublemaker Elijah and, by extension, God. Good job this story's coming along to put us straight. And Jen um, is very gratefully going to read this for us from 1 Kings 18, verse 17, down to 46. So Obadiah went to, to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the prophets said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let each cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar, down and around the altar, and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people may know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had, had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of, top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a small cloud, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. <clears throat> the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Thank you so much, Jen. And what a powerful story we've got here, right? Isn't it amazing? We're on the top of Mount Carmel, and uh, the prophets of Baal, and all those who trust him get humiliated. There's no fire, there's no miracle, there's no God. And this, my friends, is where we get joke number four, because you've got this farcical scene taking place where 450 prophets of Baal are there, and they're all dancing and saying, come on, bring the fire, come on, do it, do it, come bring the fire. They're cutting themselves, and they're trying to get Baal's attention. Come on, do it, bring the fire. 450 of them, and Elijah's there going, Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's busy. Shout louder. Come on, yeah, come on. Do it, do it. Maybe he's on the toilet. And that's what's going on here. From, from morning to night, they're shouting, trying to rouse this God to come and bring the fire to light the altar. And Elijah's there just like, they're still not getting it. They're still not getting it. But the God of Israel shows up in power not only making fire, but then bringing rain as well. It's a double humiliation for the followers of Baal, because not only has their God not turned up to bring fire, but their God of rain can't even make it rain. You see how funny this is? But the God of Israel can do all of that and so much more. It's a challenge to the very nature of their God, this false God who brings nothing, or the true God who brings life the one who's been there from the beginning, revealing himself to the people, the miracle maker, the only one worth putting your trust in. And you get this amazing, beautiful moment on Mount Carmel where they say, oh, you, Lord, you're our God. It's you. It's you. Finally, their eyes are opened. They get it. As the rest of this morning's passage continues, and if we carried on reading, we'd see that though there are some small victories, Ahab is actually selfish, and Jezebel is still evil, and they eventually get handed over to their own desires. And uh, God says through Elijah that he basically prophesies their downfall. And next week, we're going to pick up the story there and find out about Jezebel's downfall. So where are we here in the big picture? God's building a house for himself, a place where he can dwell with his people. And though the people continually forget him, he keeps reminding them that he is their God. To the point where they're saying, 
oh, it's you, Lord, it was you all along. It's you, you're our God. And this is just on the side of this mountain where their hearts turn towards God again. There's this beautiful moment of repentance for the people. Because if they were so keen on worshipping Baal, then why should God show himself to them? If you want to go and worship that God, go and worship him, you know? But in his mercy, God reveals himself to the people with an undeniable demonstration that he's their God, totally blowing away false gods and their prophets at the same time. God turns the hearts of the people towards himself once again. And not only does he turn their hearts, but then the rain comes to bring further blessing to the people. What we need to see here is that the drought is over. And when I say the drought's over, I mean the drought is over physically. God blesses them with rain. God blesses, blesses them with rain that are going to grow the crops. But God blesses them by uh, removing the spiritual drought as well. God turns their hearts back towards him. It's a moment of turning physically and spiritually for the people of Israel. God's desire hasn't changed. It's never changed. He wants a people who love him to dwell with him And that's a promise that remains to this day. And that's where I'd like to turn attention to us, Gateway Church in Poole, in 2022. Because God's desire is for a people to love and worship him, and that requires us to be all in. And there's this really poignant verse right in the middle of what Jen beautifully read for us. Um, We're on Mount Carmel, and Elijah turns to the people, and in 1 Kings 18, verse 21, he said, it says, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? There's such clarity in this moment. You can't worship God and Baal. You can't tell God you love him and then pray to Baal for the rain. That's not how this works. The people are being told in this moment, get off the fence. Where does your heart really lie? Is it with this God who does nothing, or was it with the God of heavens and earth? This morning, we're not likely to worship Baal or go and seek a fertility God. The idols of 2022 are very different to the idols in Israel, but that doesn't mean that they're any less present or any less real in our society and in our lives. The idols we've been dealing with this morning strike to the very heart of compromise and and the choice that Israel was faced with. They were being told, are you in it for yourself or are you in it for God? For your own comfort, for your own harvest, for the rain to come, or for God's kingdom? What do you really want to see in Israel? And so for us, we can't worship God and Baal as well. We can't rely on God and come here on a Sunday and say, we trust you, we put our trust in you, it's all about you. And then live Monday to Friday with our reliance on our jobs or our bank balances or our family or our status in society. We can't have God and money, God and reputation, God and comfort. Self-reliance and greed and idolatry and rebellion from God are as big a temptation today as they were then. They just go by different names. I want to stop just for a moment and ask you to examine your own heart and your own life. If a prophet from God walked through the door now, Would your life point towards worship of God or would there be something else in your heart, something else where God should be, something else that you're putting your trust in? Because whether it's Ahab or the Israelites or Jezebel or us, 
there's always temptation towards self-preservation, always temptation towards greed, to comfort, to stocking up the bank balance and storehouses, to creating reputations for ourselves or putting ourselves in the place that's reserved for God. And it's my belief that God is speaking to us through Elijah's words this morning. I believe that even in this moment now, he's saying to some people, how long will you waver between two opinions? Are you all in it for me or not? And of course, we know that none of us is perfect and we're all prone to wonder and prone to temptation and prone to putting other things ahead of our relationship with God. And the good news for us is that God is all about restoring a people to himself. And all of those temptations and all of the times that we've got it wrong are all of the reasons why Jesus went to the cross for us. As we've heard, today's Palm Sunday and all four Gospels give an account of what happened on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And we read from Matthew at the very beginning, full of fanfare and cheering as we went. John's Gospel uh, in chapter 12 gives the account of Palm Sunday this way. The next day, the great crowd had come for the fest- uh, that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is the King of Israel. As we work our way through the book of Kings, we see failure after failure by king after king who didn't obey God and didn't lead people in worship of him. We saw Ahab this morning. He certainly wasn't leading people towards God. But when we read through Kings, we should also remember the promise of the king who would be raised up, who would fulfill scripture, who would ride in, seated on a donkey, a king from David's line, to make a way for God to be with his people forever by defeating sin and wrongdoing and clearing the way for us to be in relationship with God. Where Israel's kings fail as we go through this period of Old Testament history, the king of kings succeeds, even to death on a cross, before being seated at the right hand of God. Just as God steps in to revive the widow's son from death to life, so Jesus defeats death's sting forever for those who believe in him, so that we can stand here like we did this morning and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The events at Mount Carmel that we read about in, uh, in 1 Kings 18 today help to point to another mountain. And Peter Lightheart, who uh, wrote the book that this preaching series is based on, He actually wrote a commentary about 1 Kings, and in it he writes this. Mount Carmel, the mountain from 1 Kings 18, anticipates another mountain, a mountain outside Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment falls on a substitute Israel when Jesus, the altar of God, is crucified to save his people. At Carmel in the third year, God sends rain and renews the land, and in Jerusalem on the third day, he raises Jesus from the dead to renew the whole world. At Carmel, the judgment of God is followed by rain, and at Jerusalem, the one who baptized by fire on the cross ascends to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit, pouring out the Spirit like showers from heaven. We're supposed to see the, the echoes as we see this story, the beautiful picture of the King of Kings, the King who will never, ever let us down. As we look at kings who failed to hear and obey God, we remember the King of Kings who obeyed who was tempted in every way but didn't sin. The perfect king who succeeded in all the ways that the other kings didn't and couldn't. This morning we look to Jesus. 
So on Palm Sunday today, don't let anything get in the way of your relationship with God. Have that verse ringing in your ears. You can't have two opinions. You can't waver. You can't worship God and something else. So come to God this morning through Jesus, the perfect king, the one who made a way for us to be in relationship with God and dwell in his house forever. Come to the one who dealt with all of those times that we chose something else other than God. We know that those who believe in him in his redemptive work on the cross where he took our wrongdoing and replaced it with his righteousness, we know we'll have eternal life. That's good news for us. We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today's the day to get off the fence and tell God that you're all in for him again. So I'd love to pray for us and then we'll come back and worship. So if the band want to come, please stand and join me as I pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you are our powerful and mighty God, that there is nothing else that compares to you and that you show us time and time again your faithfulness and your power and your majesty. Thank you that you made a way for us to be with you, dwelling in your house forever through your son, the King of Kings. Oh, we worship you. We want to never be those people who waver between two opinions. We want to be all in for you. We want to be those people like on Mount Carmel shouting, it's you, you're our God. It's you, the Lord, you're our God. We want to be like the people on Palm Sunday who said, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed be the Lord. We want to give you all the glory because you are the only God. And nothing else ever does or ever will compare to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.